Good morning, everybody. And pray for me and my voice. It's a long way from what it used to be. I actually am not going to to preach a sermon now. Maybe the last last quarter of what I'm going to say will be. But but this is Heritage Sunday, and the Bible has a lot to say about remembering. And we've read some scripture about that too. And that's it's important time we do that. In fact, I looked through the Bible and. 268 times God's saying to His church about different things, remember what was in the past. So it's important we do that as a church, and we'll be looking at that. It's, uh, I uh, have to apologize. Maybe personally, our members will remind you of some things of when I first came here in the early days of that, because when you look back at our history and heritage, uh, uh, I personally been a part of the 47 years I was pastor and uh, 51 years I've been here, and so I'm I'm almost half of our history and almost half of our heritage. So can't leave myself out a little bit here, but so I hope you'll excuse that. But uh, I would begin at this point to remind you, and probably some of you didn't know this, but the building in which we are worshiping here this morning is an illegal church building. And uh, some of you don't know that. It's still court records. We are illegal. But uh, that takes a little explanation, and uh, I'll get to it a little bit after a while. But uh, it'll turn out okay. Sarah Holmes was, we might go back to her individually, she was missionary to China for 20 years. And she settled here and uh, got 12 of her friends and acquaintances together, and uh, they formed the Beth Eden, Beth-Eden Baptist Church. And they met in the building back of where the uh, Strand Theater is now, in 1893. Now, our history usually reads that we're 114 years old and goes back to uh, the year 1903. But the Beth Eden Church uh, uh, bought some property at 3rd Street and Morton Avenue and later built a church there. And uh, that was shortly after 1893. And when they built that church, brick church, two and a half stories high, steeple on top, they built it for $10,000. Money a little different then than now. And then 10 years later, they decided because they were now more in the middle of Moundsville, the, the town proper, that they ought to change their name to the Moundsville Baptist Church. And technically, we, as a Moundsville Baptist Church, only date to 1903. But to me, the, actually in an action of the church, 30 seconds, they changed the name from Beth Eden to Moundsville Baptist Church. But it was the same people. They were all Beth Eden people, not Moundsville Baptist people, that didn't exist 30 seconds before. And in 30 seconds, we lost 10 years of our heritage, as far as I'm concerned. But that's, that's the way, that, unfortunately, the way that it was. I don't know a lot about some of the early history of our church, but we did have a statement that the Bible, Bible is our only, that word only is important, the only authority for our faith and practice. That was there from day one. Beth Eden, Moundsville Baptist Church as well. 
don't know a lot about all that early history, but uh, I do know in time back past, we had two pastors who did not believe that. They did not believe the Bible. And neither congregation at those times, they were several years apart, congregations never knew that their pastor did not believe the Bible. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on. You can't have a pastor for several years and not know he didn't believe the Bible. That's no problem. We have thousands of churches throughout history it's that way. In fact, 90% of our preachers today, according to George Gallup, Jr., do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Ninety percent of our preachers preaching right like I am today. And beyond that, uh, we had a couple who did not believe it. One of them, they almost fired him, not because he didn't believe the Bible, because he didn't know that. But they had some trouble financially, and the pastor and the congregation differed on some things, and had a pretty highly contested business meeting in December, and... Uh, they were working on the budget for the coming year, like we do here every December, getting ready to present the budget for the coming year. And there was just bad disagreement, so one guy got up and made the motion that they fire the pastor. Well, someone said, you, you can't fire the pastor. That's not right. He said, okay, I changed my motion, and uh, I move that... Uh, in our budget that the salary for the preacher in the coming year that he be paid a dollar a year. Well, believe it or not, someone seconded that, and believe it or not, it passed. It passed. Well, the pastor was a little hard in understanding some finances anyway, but it didn't take him long to discover, really, that it's hard to raise a family on a on dollar a year. So, he decided to try to move somewhere else, and he did. He moved into the work within the American Baptist Convention, the convention work, and moved to uh, to California. But some of you will say, would think, well, you can't. How can a pastor be be with you for a number of years? And these guys did. And you not know it? Well, you ought to know that that's very easily done. Who? Let me ask you. Who was the best angel that ever existed? Michael Gabriel, but no. He is known as the anointed cherub. Next to God only. Next to God the Father, next to God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And his name was Lucifer. And you know the rest of that story, don't you? The best angel becomes not only the worst angel, but the worst human person ever created by God. And remember the twelve apostles, when they got together, they didn't have a, an order like president, vice president, and so on. They, uh, But they did get some money as they traveled from place to place. And there was a group of women that contributed regularly to Jesus and the apostles. And so they had to have someone who was the treasurer. And who do you make your treasure? You make your treasure the guy you trust more than anybody else, right? That's common sense, isn't it? And who did they select as the most trusted apostle? His name was Judas Iscariot. And nobody knew it. Remember, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Did they all turn around and point to Judas? Not one single one did that. And who did they point to? 
they pointed to themselves, not to Judas. They completely trusted him. But uh, this, after Moundsville Baptist Church 193 came into existence, they decided after some years to this time to move. And they looked at this lot we're on here today and decided, that's the place we want to go. The houses are moving out this way from downtown area, and this is where we ought to be. To be more in the center of the population of the city of Mountsville. And so they decided, this, this is a lot we want. They all voted unanimously, this is the place. Well, it's all right to vote that. Problem is, they had a little problem, and here again it was financial again, they didn't have any money to buy it. But, there's a lot of buts in what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, but we had three loyal, faithful members of our church who did, among the three of them, have enough money to buy this, uh, this lot. In fact, it was known as a farm. This was a farm, can you believe? A farm in just this area? One very big one, but there was pasture and there was livestock here in the fence. It was, a, they called it the Burkett Farm. Um, they didn't have enough money to buy it, but it was Dr. Robert Ashworth, his son, Dr. Harold Ashworth, and Walter Sullivan. Don't ever forget the name of Walter Sullivan. If any place ever deserved a monument to one individual, it ought to be Walter Sullivan. This church, as you'll see as we go on. So they, they did. Dr. Robert was a great saintly old guy and a very godly man, a very quiet, soft-spoken man. Dr. Harold, his son, was just the opposite. He was loud and boisterous and uh, kind of cantankerous at times. And I remember one time he, I was just about ready to announce the opening hymn, and, and I heard his voice. I was looking down, and I heard Dr. Harold's voice. He would usually sit when he came about halfway down on this side of the church. And he was loud, and he said, Oh, I can't do this, can I? Well, I looked up, and he was pointing right at me. He said, Oh, I can't do this, can I? And I said, No, you can't. Get out. So, uh, you don't do that to a guy just watching this place. I wasn't here yet. But, uh, I mean, I was, wasn't at that time. But he was smoking a cigar. That's why he was saying, I can't be here. But Harold could do that. But Walter Sullivan. Walter Sullivan had a little gas station up in, I think, Benwood. Making fair money, but I don't think Walter even had a high school education. But he was a whiz and a wizard when it came to stocks and bonds. And people by the dozens came to Walter. He became a stockbroker without being a stockbroker. No training in at all, but a lot of people made a lot of money off of Walter Sullivan's advice. One guy in particular, he made a middle class guy, maybe even a little lower middle class. But Walter got him in stocks. He put a lot of his money into stocks and bonds. And Walter made him not a millionaire, but a multi-millionaire. And he was grateful to, to Walter. He came to him one day and said, Walter, uh, I, I'd like to give some money to you personally, but my tax man says I need to give away some money so I can hold on more to the money I've got. Well, uh, and so he said to Walter, Walter, to do that I need to 
maybe give you to one of your favorite charities. Do you have any favorite charities that I can give to them and make you happy? He, he says, Walter said, i got one favorite charity. He said, well, what's that? He said, it's called the Moundsville Baptist Church. And, they, and he laughed and he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to give you $150,000. I'm going to give you a check right now for 75000 And I'll give you the other seventy-five a little bit later. The tax man tells me I've got too many categories of where my finances are. need it consolidated more. So a little later, I'll give you the other seventy-five. But he gave over $75,000. And that $75,000 built this building right here. At least the exterior of it. They had to get some some insides to it, some pews and so on. So the church had to borrow some money from the bank, one of the banks here in town. And uh, they, uh, but 75000 built this building that we're in right now, in this sanctuary we're in right now. And uh, because of Walter Sullivan. And, uh, and he, uh, so we have it. So they come back to this a little bit later also again. But, uh, Muller Sullivan was responsible for this. But after after we got the lot, and this lot, as I said, was the Burkett Farm, as it was called, after that we, uh, we uh, still didn't have much money, and uh, I still hadn't arrived yet. But uh, we had now the, uh, the church here, organ here, pews, but the organ wasn't paid for, the pews weren't paid for, and uh, we're buying a parsonage, 1610 4th Street down the street here, a couple of blocks, and we weren't paying for any of those, let alone what we'd borrowed from the uh, from the bank, and we sold a few bonds, and uh, but we weren't paying the bills, we we weren't paying the electric bill and the gas bill and other other bills that we had. And uh, it was difficult. So when I came here, it, it was uh, the church was their income was four hundred dollars a month less than what our general expenses were. Let alone trying to pay the bank and try to pay uh, for the parsonage and so on. But uh, a miracle was about to take place, and they built this building in 1958 but still couldn't pay the ordinary bills. As I said, a miracle took place, and in July 1966, they hired me as the pastor. Now, it's good you laugh. I can laugh with you because I had nothing to do with that miracle. But I was going to be here. I've been here in the worst of times and the best of times. And worst of times, it really was kind of scary at times. I had no idea what the financial difficulties were here. But uh, uh, that I certainly was not the miracle. I had nothing to do with it. But uh, I, uh, I was pastor of, before I came here, there was sort of a miracle in my coming here, in a way. I was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Mannington, West Virginia. And uh, good ministry there. Everything was going great. And I going so great that I went to uh, Dr. Farmer, Bill Farmer, the executive minister of the West Virginia Baptist Convention, and I said to him, Bill, we were on first-term name basis. 
I said, I think I want to move. And he said, oh, you're having trouble, huh? I said, no, I have no trouble at all. He said, well, you're having some problems that are about ready to be trouble, right? I said, no, no, no problems at all. Well, you're having problems with the deacons. In West Virginia, uh, most churches, particularly in southern West Virginia, were terrified of their deacon boards. Deacons were always firing the pastors, and particularly in southern West Virginia. They were noted for that. I said, no, deacons love me, and deacons love me more than they love their wives. Well, not, not quite, but they love me, and I love them. Everything was fine. And I said, we have more members than we've ever had in the history of the church, and more people attending at one time than any time in the history of the church. They're bringing more money to the church than any time in the history of the church. Everything is, is well. And Dr. Farmer said, well, it sounds to me like you've got a perfect situation. I said, I do. That's why I'm here. I want to change churches. He said, well, that doesn't make sense to me, but try to explain that if you can. I said, well, I'm afraid because everything is perfect. I feel like right now what I'd like to do is just sit back in a lazy boy and just take it easy the rest of my life right here. It can't get any better than this. And the problem with that is I feel like I would not in the future work as hard as I ought to for the church and it wouldn't be good for the church and it wouldn't be good for me. So I want you to consider moving me to another church. And he doesn't do it the way that works. The executive minister of the convention uh, sends out names to churches that need pastors. And I said, put my name on the list of, of churches that may be without pastors or will be without pastors. And he said, he said, you know, you don't make any sense to me at all what you're saying, but in another way, you're making perfect sense to me. And I appreciate what you're saying and thinking about. So I said, then, well, will you put my name out in the churches that are looking for pastors, maybe? He says, yes, I will. I promise you, I will put your name out there. Okay. Well, just a little bit after that, the pastor of the Moundsville Baptist Church resigned, Reverend DeSitz, and he took a church down in Taze Valley. So Moundsville Baptist Church needed a pastor. So what they what they uh, they did they wrote to the government a pulpit committee they wrote to West Virginia Baptist Convention office to Dr. Farmer and he sent them that pulpit committee asked him to send names of pastors who may want to move and change and maybe like to come to Mountainsville he sent them the names of forty two preachers from which they could select a pastor here. Now, you take, all you have to do with that, put those 42 names in the hat, pull one of them out, you, you got the deal, call them and tell them to come on here. Well, incidentally, my name was not on that list. Now, you might say, now, wait a minute, uh, Tom, didn't you, didn't you go to Dr. Farmer and tell him that you'd like to move? I said, yes. Didn't you asking to put your name in the names of churches that maybe you're looking for pastors, and Mountainville Baptist Church was looking for a pastor. And I said, yes. And I said, was my name on the list? Uh, I didn't say that. Of course, I wasn't here. I knew about that. But my name wasn't on the list. Well, the pulpit committee 
and went over the list and started visiting some churches and pastors. In the meantime, while I'm still at Mannington, I, we've sent our young people to Judson camp, Youth Camp, and uh, they, they met in the 4-H camp of Marsh, Marion County. And Moundsville sent their kids to the same camp, and the founder of that camp was Reverend DeSist, who, when he was pastor of a church near Clarksburg, before he came to Moundsville, he started this camp. So I was there. Here, and with the camp, you have to have volunteers. You have to have cooks and dishwashers and people who clean, people who maintain the place, cabin counselors and other things. So each church that had kids there were asked maybe to send some volunteers to help in the camp. And we had three or four there. Moundsville had ten or a dozen people they sat down because they sent more kids to that camp than any other church. And there were at least twelve churches that sent kids there. Well, I, for a few years, was the uh, uh, one of the pastors who stayed there in the camp and would teach some of these teenagers uh, during the morning. And I noticed, and for those who were volunteers, all these volunteers I'm talking about, that was free time for them. They could do anything or nothing. They were only four miles from Fairmont, which is a pretty good-sized city. They could go to town if they wanted to. But I noticed that... Uh, when I was teaching these teenagers a group here, and it'd be a group here, and a group here, and a group here, that the Moundsville people, for some reason, were sitting, 10 or 12 of them, sitting and listening to me teach this Bible class to teenagers for about three years. And then I became the camp pastor of uh, that camp and preached a sermon in the morning and a sermon in the evening. And... Uh, they were always there for that as well. Well, my last year there, it would turn out to be my last year. I didn't know it would be, but it was. And at the evening service on Saturday evening, and that was big. You, you sort of pushed, everybody was pushing for that one service, really big time. They wanted that service. And uh, we had 412 teenagers there. And when I gave the invitation, that which would have been my last sermon there, uh, I gave the invitation, and 204 teenagers got out of their seats, came forward, and gave their lives to Christ. 200, 204 teenagers. Was, I'll never forget that experience. It was something else. We were half the night counseling these kids and so on. But again, people from Moundsville were witnessing all of this. Well, there, in the meantime, you're in a home church in Moundsville. They weren't making much progress, the pulpit committee was, uh, with uh, getting a pastor. They had gone to six different churches, heard six different pastors, didn't like any of them, didn't like the 36 names they had. And uh, so they were frustrated. But the people like it was down at the camp, they were a little frustrated. And they got on the pulpit committee, why haven't you got somebody? My land had 42 names. You could surely can get somebody out of there. And they said, we just don't really have a good prospect here. But a couple of, some of them then came to the pulpit committee, two men especially, uh, Bob Morrell and Delmer Williams, and some, all of them, not all of them, but many of you can remember both those guys. And they said, was Reverend Thomas Steele, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Mannington, on that list? 
And they looked at it and said, no, nobody by that name here. Uh, well, why wasn't my name on there? Well, I knew it wouldn't be on there. Uh, and they, again, you'd think, well, didn't you go to Dr. Farmer and he'd say, put your name on there? And this is the head honcho of the West, old West Virginia Baptist Church, of 700 churches. And they uh, said, yes, but why is my name not on there? And I said, well, because you're tantamount to saying that Dr. Farmer maybe is lying to you. I said, no, he's not maybe lying to me. He's outright lying to to me at the time. I said, no, he, he would never send my name here because this was a pretty significant church and uh, I was not a trained seminary man. And Dr. Farmer didn't believe in having pastors in, unless they were fully trained seminary men. Well, I wasn't fully trained. I wasn't trained at Mannington either. But when I left, they said I was the best preacher they ever had in their history. And so, but he wouldn't send my name here. But they listened to Delmer Williams and, and uh, Bob Morrell. And he told them, those guys said, go down and listen to this guy in Mannington. I think you'll like him. We like him as far as we're concerned. We'd like to have him come and be our pastor. Go tell us what you think. So they went down, heard me preach, and uh, after Tom Virgin was the church treasurer, he was chairman of the committee. Tom Stevenson was the was on that committee. Uh, Dean Wolf, father of Bob Wolf, was on that committee. Herman Robinson, Ned Weekly was on that committee, and Thelma Nesbitt had one lady on that committee. And they heard me preach and. They met on the sidewalk outside of church, and they, they didn't know whether to, they had before. If they didn't like what the preacher was saying or what he was doing, they would just get in their car and go home and not talk anymore to the preacher at all. But they decided, hey, they all said, we, we like what we heard, so let's take him to dinner and see, ask him some questions. So that's what they did, and Tom Virgin was the, the say, the chairman. They told me, asked me if they'd like to take me to, to dinner, and I was willing to go. I said, okay. And I said, got a good restaurant here in Mannington, Winter Garden Restaurant. People come from all over, particularly on Sunday, to, to eat there. I mentioned that, and Tom Burton said, do you mind if we go to the plantation? It's a restaurant he knew about. Tom Burton was, had, he was 30-some years, he was secretary-treasurer of all the Eagles clubs of, uh, of West Virginia. And so he was in a lot of different restaurants. And he said, Plantation is one of only two restaurants that have my favorite meal. Would you mind going to Plantation? I said, I'm not mind at all. It's a good restaurant. I knew that. Good food. But they were a little pricey for me and my family. They and three kids at that time. So uh, we didn't go down there very often. It cost too much. But he said, when he got in the restaurant there, the owner of the restaurant, a lady named Mary Alice Fluhar, he said, uh, she looked at Tom and uh, he says, do I know you? He says, I think, yes, you probably know me. He says, I've been here a few times and uh, uh, I get a special meal from you. He says, now I know who you are. I, I don't know your name, but I know who you are. I will guarantee you we will fix that same special meal for you, Okay. He said, that would be great. So they did, and we asked me a lot of questions and so on. And uh, Afterwards, they, uh, uh, Tom 
Stevenson didn't tell me this until probably a year after I had come here. But he said to me one, about a year after I was here, he said, you know, Van, Van, of course they were inseparable. She came along for the interview. And uh, Tom Burden's wife came along. But Tom said, Van, they were on her way back to uh, 250 from Mannington. 250 is crooked all the way. And she and Tom were from Ohio originally. They were used to level flat roads. and Never did get used to the curves and the hills of West Virginia. But uh, Van said, we don't have to take any more of these trips anymore, thank goodness. And Tom said to her, well, yeah, we, we don't have pastor yet. She said, Van said to me, he said, yes, we do. This is the guy we want. This is the guy we need. So you convinced the other members of the committee. Well, they, when I got back to Moundsville, they stopped at the church here and they met together and they unanimously said, let's, uh, they were all in agreement, let's get this guy cut. Recommend him to the church if he is willing to come. They made a special call when they had just left me and asked if I would be willing to come. And I considered I said yes. So they presented to the church, and I was unanimously uh, elected as pastor and selected as the pastor of, the, of this church. But I didn't know much about the, knew nothing about the church, really. And I, I, I didn't... Uh, certainly know the financial condition, but that wouldn't have been a factor anyway. But as I said, we still, even though we had the building here now, these pews weren't paid for, the organ still wasn't paid for, and the parsonage wasn't paid for. And I gave the, the Mannington Church 60-day notice when I had been there, still there, 30 days before I come here. And uh, the uh, the the three musketeers, doctors uh, Robert and Dr. Harold and Walter Sullivan were called to a meeting by the banker. And the banker came, they, two or three of them came and said to, uh, to these four men, uh, before they said anything, Tom Burden said, I'm assuming you guys want to talk to us about finances and discuss that. And they said, no, we're not, we're not here to discuss anything. We're here to tell you and to dictate to you. Right now, put this date down, 30 days from tonight, we're going to possess, uh, repossess the parsonage, and 30 days we're going to take it away from you and sell it to somebody who wants a house and will pay for it. And further, the money that you have borrowed from us, we have not... Uh, uh, given you, uh, you haven't paid us one dollar on the principal, and you're not paying the interest, 60 days from tonight, we're going to repossess the church and take it and sell it to a church who wants to pay for the building. Well, that was, that was kind of startling to these guys. The next day, Older Sullivan again went to the bank he didn't pay the interest on the parsonage. He didn't pay the regular monthly payment that was due. He bought the parsonage. And he deeded it to the church. Had we moved into the parsonage when we were supposed to move, less than 30 days from that time, we would have been in, it, in the parsonage four days and been evicted. That's the way it was, if Walter hadn't bought the parsonage. But 
still hadn't paid. He got 30 days. This, this Moundsville Church, Baptist Church, has 30 days to live. We would be gone as a building and a lot. We would be totally gone in 30 days if we don't make some payments to them for uh, part of the financing of this building and inside of it. The bonds and so on, bonds hadn't been paid. So we came 30 days from exist, uh, failing to exist anywhere here. We'd lose not only the building, we'd lose the lot, all of that. Well, I kept, and we, the little time I'd been here, I kept saying that we're not bringing in enough money to pay the regular bills. I mean, let alone take care of the, uh, the banker, take care of the, the pews, take care of the organ. Nothing's being paid. No way to pay it. I didn't see any way to pay it. Well, uh, it was a desperate situation. We got 30 days to live. Well, I would mention to people and so on, the Board of Finance hadn't met in five years because why? Why would you meet? Because you don't have any money to talk about. Uh, so, and uh, so uh, it was a difficult time. And, but they keep telling me, preacher, don't worry about it. We got the other 75000 yet to come. We're going to have more money than we know what to do with it. I said, when? They said, we don't know, but any day now. That's what the pastor told us when he left. Any day now. Uh, well, after a while, dumb me, I asked who this attorney was that was representing us uh, when we got the first 75000 And... Uh, so they gave me the name, telephone. I called the guy, the lawyer up in Wheeling. He was up there. And uh, told him who I was. I said, you're, I'm the new pastor of the uh, fairly new Moundsville Baptist Church. He said, oh, uh, your name is what? I said, Tom Steele. He said, I've been thinking about calling you. I didn't know who was the new pastor. And I said, well, I'm him. And he said, okay, I want to talk to you, but what can I do for you right now? And I said, give me a check. He said, Pastor, with all due respect to you in uh, your church, I, uh, the only check I give to a church is to my own church, and I'm not going to give a, a check to you. I said, maybe I need to make myself a little more clear. Not, I don't want you to give me a church. I want you a check. I want you to give me the check. He said, what are you talking about? I said, the check from the estate. This man had died in the meantime. And... Uh, it was an estate, and three nephews had charge of the estate. And I said, we're, I understand we're supposed to get the other 75000 from the estate. He said, how long have you been to the church? I said, it's only been very long. He said, well, have, do you, have you talked to anybody in your church? I said, oh, yes, I've talked to all of them. He said, this $75,000 you are expecting was thrown out of court seven years ago. Seven years before. Uh, surely your congregation has told you about that. You're not going to get $75,000. In fact, it didn't even go to court. It was thrown out of court because you can't collect a pledge to a church. And everybody knows that. You can't do that. And, and I, then he said, Now, if you think that's bad news that you're not getting it, the court also ruled but the $75,000 you received is illegal because the man who gave it to Walter was judged mentally incompetent 
before he gave you this check. You, this church, must pay $75,000 now or they're going to repossess your church. Now, here we are, 30 days. The estate is claiming we have to pay back 75000 and the uh, bank wants uh, to the money that they had loaned, and we got 30 days. We don't have $75, and we owe 75000 today. Well, we had, we had that, weren't paying it. So I, I was devastated by that. So I told the church that Sunday morning, next Sunday morning, what the situation was. They, not a soul, not one single solitary soul, one exception, knew anything about what I've just told you. And when, when I told them, one lady screamed out loud. Others were upset. Some of them, people were crying because they knew we, we're gone as a church. It's all over in less than 30 days now. Uh, but then the attorney told me, he said, but there is good news. Bad news, you're not getting 75, but the 75,000 you owe the estate, and they are going to repossess the church. There, these three nephews have some other debts that they're trying to collect too, and so they just said, forgive all the debts. So they forgave the debts the 75000 that we owed the estate. And he says, you don't have to pay it. So that was good news. But we still had all these other bills. Uh, on top, that was a Sunday. On Wednesday, prayer meeting, Tom Burgeon came to, to prayer meeting, and Tom Burgeon never came to prayer meeting. And I thought, don't tell me. I thought those shoes had already dropped. You know, for, uh, I said, He's not good. Had got good news. I know that. And he said, "Preacher, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, we have all told sixty-eight dollars in the bank. That's every dime we've got, and part of that's Sunday school money. It's not even church money. And Sunday, we know what the offerings are going to be, roughly." There's not going to be enough offerings to pay you. Payroll is due Monday. And we're not going to have money to pay you. And, and he said, please, please, I wouldn't blame you if you did. Don't try to leave here. This church loves you. We love you. I love you. Don't. Don't do that. I don't know. In a couple of weeks, we can maybe get some money to pay you, but we can't pay your salary now. I said, I won't leave. He said, thank you for that. And Anyway, he said, pray. Pray for it. He said, I'm not much of a praying man. You know that. But he said, pray for a good offering this coming Sunday. And I said, well, I, I'll do that. And he said, no, you don't understand. I mean, I want you to pray real hard. I said, I will. He says, Oh, he got real loud. He says, Preacher, listen, understand me. Pray hard. This is for an offering Sunday, a good one. And he yelled at me that way. Pray hard for the offering. I said, Is the Pope a Catholic? You'll get that a little bit. But he's, I said, Yes, I will pray hard. Turned out we got an offering bigger than it had in three years. 
and they had enough to pay me. And they always did from then on. And the offering started coming in, and I preached on the following Sunday, Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, about tithing. I said, the tithe, you know, isn't yours. You don't. It's not your money. And for the first fruits, I've had people ask me about tithe. Is the tithe before or after taxes? Before taxes, the Bible says first fruits. God says the first fruits is God. So it's not before the government gets there, they take out of your check, but the first fruits, not, not after taxes. And from then on, money came in and we paid off everything and everything turned out real, real good. And I had tenure, 47 years as a pastor, and that's, that's, that's a really good thing. And not only that, the information came out across the country. They do this every year. Uh, pastors, it's a pastoral staff. And if you have two pastors, if you have three, if you have four or more, and uh, what, what churches and their pastoral staff, how many years do they have together? We had three at that time. This guy has been here hundred years now, pretty soon, and uh, uh, he and Burl Jernigan was here. And there was a time when that came out that myself and Burl and Ron, we had a total together, and it's, uh, the three of us at that time, eighty-nine years. The three of us, and we probably got along at least twenty of those anyway. Uh, so we got along great. 89 years, and we were number one church in the United States of America as far as pastoral staff and tenure. Now, that's, you may not think, oh, that's not, listen, folks, I want to tell you something. When the average pastoral staff averages six years, that's a lot. The second church, church in the country had 40 some years of pastoral staff. And incidentally, someone was asking me about Burl earlier today. I ran into Burl last week, and he's still pastoring up in Youngstown. He's down here to see his grandson, and he was here. But it, uh, and that's what I want to get into right now. When when I came here, I had two two churches that asked me if I would come and preach revival. Well, that becomes null and void when you go to another church. But I asked the church about it, and I said, anyway, I could still do that. I hadn't been here very long. I said, yeah, go ahead. That's, that's fine. Well, a little later, uh, the church mentioned some other people were asking me if I could come to revival. And, and the church felt, this is maybe unusual, maybe not. They said, hey, we appreciate you, Pastor. And we, uh, we uh, you can go, we'll give you two weeks a year to preach revivals. And you can go, we... We, we love you, we love you preaching, and it's only fair that we maybe share you with some other churches that they can get some preaching like we get here. So, so go ahead. And the deacon board especially said, yes, this, that's only right and proper that we, it's like sending out a missionary, you're the missionary, to go to other churches and preach revivals, get some people saved. And Yes, go. And, uh, Earl Clark, some of you can remember Earl Clark, great man. He, Earl Clark said yes, and told the deacons, "You, you, uh, you go to other churches." Said Billy Graham, and Billy Graham would hear you preach, he'd quit preaching. 
Now, that's Earl Clark. He got one amen to that. I'll tell you where that came from. But, uh, but it, uh, uh, he said, that's what they said. Four new revivals I preached. 400, no, excuse me, 642 people were saved in those revivals. 642. Out of that number, three young men uh, stepped forth to, to go into the ministry. And one lady down in back there, I remember her, and she came forward and said, uh, she came forward and wanted to be a missionary. And she later did and went to, to India. And that's not all. 642, if you put them all together, make a good-sized church. Uh, they, uh, not only that, but they, uh, Sabre Baptist Church, I preached there, and they had some people saved. And they taped the messages. Remember those little tapes, the little, the little tape players? They taped them. In one sermon, two words that will change your life. And this is what they did. They took these to people in the Morgantown area that were not saved. They said, we're going to preach to you. We're not going to read scriptures to you. Listen to this tape. And if you need me, listen to it several times. And, uh, and we'll come back in one week take the, the tape player from you and the tape. And they said, we have received, 104 people have received Christ from listening to that sermon. And 104 people have joined our church because of Tom Steele's message. So it's, it's, it was a, that's the ministry of this church, not, not mine. And the church did something else. They had, one of the, some of, one in the prison said, we need, pastor to, to preach to the men in the prison Thursday nights. Can you do that? I said, well, I have to ask the church. I don't know what Thursday night will bring. The church said, yes. It seems we read about prisoners getting out of prison and a short time later they're back in the prison committing the same crimes and they're back again. You go preach to them and get some of those guys saved. I did get some of them. Not a whole lot. I preached there 30 years and Thirty some thirty some guys became uh, were saved. Three of those guys took some courses, correspondence courses, and uh, when they got out and they didn't get out, they became they became ministers. Now listen to what what I'm talking about: the ministry and the heritage of this church now in the big time. You added up, fourteen men went in the ministry during the forty-seven years I was here. Three more from revivals I preached. Three more from guys in the prison. And out of those 20 guys, you think they've been preaching for years themselves. And this, the ministry and the history and heritage of this church is that 20 preachers have been out there preaching the Word of God to other churches, people getting saved, other men going into the ministry. This church has been responsible for thousands Ten thousands, if the Lord tarries, million people who are being won to Christ because of the ministry of this church and letting me and actually sending me out to preach in places other than this church. And it's been a great, uh, great, this is a great history and heritage of the church. And it, it, it old saying the beat goes on, and it does. It's still going on. We'll go on for years. I said to the church when I first came here, 
asked me, what program do you have? I said, the Great Commission is my program. And they said, that's what we want to do. So we've had all these people, all these people saved. Actually, counting that one church, 742 in revivals I've got. And uh, the ones who come out from our church. And this has been a heritage of this church from the beginning. And all the financial problems, yes, there are problems. And yes, this is a church that has been interested in winning people to Christ. And you have won, through these ministries, thousands of people already, and no telling how many more thousands will be won. And I want to say, church, any church in the country, you know, we were in, our, in the ABC, we were in the upper 5% of winning people to Christ. Of all the churches all across the United States, more than 7,000 churches, we're near 5% who have won people to Christ. And that is no small thing. I remember one year, two Baptist churches, the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church in Huntington and the Lakeshore Baptist Church in Chicago of our denomination. They had 13 years. They had one more. More people had joined their church in 13 years than any other church in the state and in the nation. And you say, that's good. But you know something about them? In those 13 years, everybody who had joined their church joined because of a church letter from another Baptist church or because of Christian experience. Neither of them had won one single soul. Christ in 13 years. And we led the state and were five, more than 95% of the churches of our denomination. And that's all been a ministry of this church. It's your, it's your history and your heritage, not mine. It's been that way. And there are a few churches in all the United States that have that record of winning people to Christ percentage-wise than the Mountsville Baptist Church. You have a fantastic history. You have a fantastic heritage that few churches ever know. It's been a great church. I uh, just one final note. I uh, I listen to the speeches and all kinds of speeches. We we've had uh, we started churches. We started with about thirty people out on the church lawn. Uh, uh, Fourth of July weekend, wherever it was, uh, making homemade ice cream with the crank, the old-fashioned crank, and the homemade ice cream, and none of you buys like the homemade stuff. And, and I said, you know, people would be walking around the sidewalks and blowing their horns. I said, we ought to make this public. We've had church jammed, as you know. One time we had 600 people here. We had churches. In the front, churches down in the center, churches actually cleared to the wall. And the state fire marshal was here. And he said, I'm going to leave because I am sworn duty to close this down. I cannot allow this to happen here. Well, we had to put some of them under the tent, and somehow we figured we put a, a, a speakers outside. They were in the tent and heard so were 600 people. Christmas Eve service we started, always standing room only. And then for three years I'd looked at TV and there was not a Christmas program uh, 
for three years like it's even television, secular history. And even old uh, Kenny, what's his name, always had a Christmas program. Uh, the gambler, yeah. And I went to fold him and hold him. Who, who is his name? Rogers. Kenny Rogers, always. But there's three years ahead, and I said, listen, we've got to have some Christmas music somewhere in this world. If nobody else does it, let's do it. I talked to the choir. And they said, we'd like to do it. But the, again, money was a factor. We were okay, but we had money, but we didn't have that. But Sullivan again, Harding Sullivan, the widow of, of Walter, after he had died, we talked about starting a school. She gave $65,000 to build that school. And when I mentioned to the choir, we do a, a Christmas Eve TV, uh, Bob Sullivan, Walter's son, said, I'll after the choir was over, he didn't even say in front of the choir, so I'll give you $1,000 to do it. And we did it. In the early years of our TV ministry, we had a television station in Fairmont, another one in Clarksburg, just like Wheeling in Steubenville. And we had those, Wheeling, uh, Clarksburg and Fairmont joined us and put our program on. And for a few years, we had 40 2,000 people who watched our Christmas Eve program from 11.30 till midnight. Several years. 42,000. And I heard from people from far away as Elkins and Weston, Cambridge, Ohio, beyond Steubenville. We've had some great ministries here. And, and all the one, one purpose in mind of bringing people to Christ. And I just want to say that the result of all of that. This church uh, has had as great a history and great a heritage as any church. Churches would give their right arms to have the history and heritage you have. I've listened to a lot of speeches, and I saw a while back that the, the greatest speeches before Congress, both houses of Congress, like the State of the Union the President gives every year in January. And they, uh, they, uh, they said that uh, the of these ministers we've had, the two greatest, longest standing ovation messages to joint houses of Congress, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, was one of them. And he likened the United States to uh, to Esther. He says, "If it weren't for you, Israel wouldn't even be existing today, and she won't in the future without this country." And they gave him a standing ovation. The one, number one, was General Schwarzkopf. Can you remember him? He spoke to both houses. If you remember, this was a war. We hadn't, we hadn't won a war. We, we had a tie, if you want to call it that, in Korea. Had a tie in Vietnam. But we hadn't won a war. But here comes Desert Storm. And the, the media said we couldn't win that we can't win this war. They did a two-hour special, ABC. And they said, uh, uh, you, uh, they said, they can't beat the Re- Republican Guard. That was the name of the army of Iraq. The foot soldiers, the infantry, the foot soldiers, the hand-to-hand combat guys. They said they've had all kinds of experience. We're going to send guys, young guys, who've had limited time limited training. We cannot win the war on the ground. 
the Democrat Party agreed. And they said not only that, they had the special tank, the greatest tank force the world has ever known in, in Iraq, especially designed for desert warfare. And our tanks, we got some good ones. We can't compete with them. We will lose. We will not tie in this war. We will lose the war. Well, you know the end of that. In one week, Desert Storm is over. Really, in one day, in one day, we whipped the Republican Guard. And you saw pictures of over a thousand of them walking with their heads down, dropping their guns, and asking the American soldiers to shoot them because they had disgraced themselves, they had disgraced Iraq, they were not had disgraced Allah, they were not fit to live. Of course, our soldiers didn't do it. But then there was the battle to end all battles, the tanks. We had no chance. He said it would take three or four days. In 45 minutes, every single tank that Iraq had had been totally, totally destroyed, wiped out. And here is Schwarzkopf telling what the American army had done. He says, this is the greatest army in the world, and I have been privileged to be its commander. And he said, I want you to know, all of you, and he looked right at the Democrat delegates, I want you all to know that this is the best army on earth. And I'm so proud to be the commander. He says, I want you all to know, I am, excuse this, I am damn proud of every single one of them. And they exploded. They exploded, if you saw it. They just exploded. They didn't stop applauding until they turned the lights out. He said, I want to say to you that the time I was pastor of this church, I want you to know, I, I will not use, I am not going to use Schwarzkopf's language, but I am blank, you fill in the blank, proud to have been the pastor of this church for 47 years. This is the greatest, greatest history and heritage of any church, of any equal in the United States of America. And it's still going on, and it still will. And I'm still here. And I just want you to know how proud I've been of this church. I thank you for that. Amen. Amen. In a long history. Our history is a little long. Our history is a little long. But I come to the most important part of any service. Everything that happens in it will this is where it is. the invitation. This is where it really counts. This is where the rubber meets the road. 